That song that many of us grew up singing, the hymn Joy to the World, has been one of the most popular Christmas songs since the 1800s. But uh, what's interesting about that song is there are several actually interesting things about it. And Josh kind of alluded to one of them already is uh, the reason that it was written. Uh, it was written by a guy named Isaac Watts. And Isaac Watts uh, got tired of being in church every single day and every, or every Sunday, I guess, um, and every song sounding the exact same. And so uh, they did some music a little different in those days. There were actually no screens that projected lyrics, and many of them didn't even have hymnals. So their songs were actually psalms from the Bible. So there's 150 of them, and so they would just pick some. What's interesting is they all sounded the exact same. They all sang them with the exact same energy, the exact same excitement. So you get Psalms like 66, the one we're going to read today, that says, Shout joyfully to the Lord. Or to God, and people would sing that song, but they would sing it with the same amount of energy that they would sing Psalm 23, which is the one that we hear at funerals all the time. And so Isaac was like, This is odd to me. Like, shouldn't, if the psalm says to shout for joy, shouldn't there be joy in what we are singing? It should sound different than when we're confessing sins. It should sound different than we were lamenting and, 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 uh, and crying out to God. Like, there should be a difference in the way we sing these songs, and, and they shouldn't all be monotonous. They shouldn't all just be kind of dull drum and humdrum and all that stuff. And so his dad actually challenged him. So if you don't like it, do something about it. And so Isaac Watts did. He decided that he was going to take the Psalms and he was going to rewrite them, not to rewrite Scripture, but to make them a little more upbeat and make them a little different. And so what he did was he actually took the Psalms and instead of using the exact words of the Bible, he just paraphrased them a little different so that we could better understand the meaning of it, the reasoning of it, um, to give those that were a little more exciting, a little more energy to it. Um, and so because he did something different, some people automatically looked at it and said, no. I don't like it. I ain't doing it. Because it was different. And so believe it or not, that was contemporary music back then. So I want you to think, this song that we've sang for hundreds of years was contemporary music and when Isaac Watts wrote it. And people rejected it. They didn't want anything to do with it because it was this contemporary excuse me, this contemporary idea and this contemporary way of doing worship. And, and we don't like it. And we're not doing it. And so it really took over a hundred years before people kind of liked the song and it kind of gained popularity. And the other interesting thing about the psalm is really about uh, Psalm 98, but it was never really meant to be a Christmas song. It was really more about the coming of Christ the second time. And so when Isaac Watts wrote this song, or rewrote the psalm, he, he kind of wasn't picturing the birth of Christ as much as he was picturing the second coming of Christ. And, and so while there's great truth that the birth of Christ is this miraculous, joyful event, there's also this miraculous, joyful event that we, in this time, are also eagerly waiting for and eagerly anticipating, which makes this psalm a beautiful song of Advent. Because while we are both anticipating the joy that's coming, we are celebrating the joy that has already come through Christmas. And so I want you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 66. We're going to read the first five verses, but we're going to see in these first five verses these ultimate reasons for joy that are really pointing us to the Christmas story and all the reasons that joy should fill the earth. So if you've got your Bible, Psalm 66, we'll read the verse uh, 1 through 5. Verse 1 starts off with very clearly, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Verse 2, sing about the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. 
Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. Verse 4, all the earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Verse 5, come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. For this time of year, this season that we are celebrating, God, we thank you so much for, for Christmas and this moments of these weeks building up to it. God, I pray this morning that, the, that we listen to the words of this psalm and we see that it is lived out and it's portrayed beautifully in the Christmas story, not just in the story, but the leading up to the story. God, I pray this morning that we don't leave here with just the same mundane understanding of Christmas. But God, that we will shout joyfully for you. God, that we will shout joyfully. We will make known your name around the world and across this globe, Father. God, that we will be so overwhelmed with joy and so overwhelmed with excitement because of your awe-inspiring works. God, maybe we just need to stand and just be in awe of what you did on Christmas once again. God, forgive us for when we have lost that wonder. Forgive us for when we lost that sense of awe of what this story is all about. And so, God, I pray in the time that we have together, God, that we study your word, that we become your students, God, and that we leave here, God, just amazed at who you are and the works that you have done. And, God, that you did it all for us. And so, God, I pray this morning that joy will fill the earth. God, I pray that joy this morning will fill our hearts. And I pray that we will be so full of joy because we stand in awe of an amazing God who did such an amazing thing on a Christmas day thousands of years ago. And so, God, I pray that you speak. And I pray that we listen. God, I pray that you meet us where we need this morning. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, there was this French comedy that was produced, and, and I'll be fully honest and open and transparent with you. I don't know anything about the movie except what I read about it online because it's all in French and I don't understand any of it. Uh, but I read about it online, and it kind of sounded like this interesting story uh, that this husband and wife were kind of eagerly anticipating the birth of their son. And, and so you kind of know those, those months building up to the birth of a child. Some of you know that very well. And so one evening, they were invited over by his uh, sister and brother in law uh, to. Uh, dinner and they had some other friends there at dinner and there was all kinds of conversation going on about the birth of a child, the plans that were being made, and, you know, all those normal things like what's the nursery going to look like and what's the, this shower going to be, you know, all these normal conversations that happen building up to the birth of a child. And, and so the, the would-be parents or the coming up to be parents just kind of say, well, we don't know. We hadn't made that decision. We hadn't decided that yet. That we don't know if there's going to be elephants or giraffes. We don't know if there's going to be bunny rabbits. We don't know all these things about the nursery. But one thing we do know, one thing we are certain about we are certain about the name for this child and so you can imagine that everybody at the table at that moment just kind of got silent and they just kind of set up on the edge of their seats just waiting to hear this announcement what is it they're going to name this child and so suddenly the father it's all this great anticipation he reveals the name of what his son is going to be called but he didn't quite get the reaction that he was wanting for because, or looking for. Because most of the time when you hear a name, people are like, oh, I like that name. That's a beautiful name. But when he announced what the name was going to be, one of the couples at the table just kind of busted out laughing because they thought, surely this guy is not serious. Surely he's not going to name this child that. And like I said, I honestly don't know what the name was. 
But then they realized that looking at the dad's face, no, he, he was serious about this. This was what he was going to name his child. This was what he was going to name his boy that was coming into the world. And so their laughter quickly turned into horror and disgust in the father and mother that, that would even consider naming their child this. And so then the rest of the movie plays out that the guests try to convince the father and mother that this is a terrible idea. You should not name your child this. And they start going into all these personal stories, all these background stories. They start coming up with all these um, rivalries from the past and all these unspoken family issues that nobody talked about anymore. And, and they kind of brought all these up. And he said, not to mention all the nicknames. Think of all the nicknames this poor kid is going to have to endure for the rest of their lives. And see, the parents really thought this was all overblown. They really thought there's no way that a name carries this much weight. There's no way that a name can be this important, that it's going to change everything for this kid. And the guests of the, uh, the party said, no, you need to understand that the name will determine everything for this child. The name will put this child on a trajectory of his life, and it will determine the outcome of his life. And so for them, there's a huge significance in the name and what this child is going to be named. See, they said, when you name a child, you should want people to be joyful at the name of that child. You should want them to be excited that child is coming, not be shrieking in terror and fear. Now, again, I don't know what the name was, but apparently it was something so bad that it was going to cause pain and agony amongst the family. And so when I read Psalm 66, I think the author would agree that when it comes to names, they are extremely, extremely important. He says in this verse, in, in uh, this chapter in Psalm 66, that this name should bring us joy. In fact, the first five verses, the author gives several reasons that there should be joy. And the first one is, is at his name. He starts off in verse 1 with his kind of declaration. This is what he's telling you to do. He says, shout joyfully to God all the earth. That's the opening line. So that's the reason that Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. And he actually wrote it from a different psalm. But he says, listen, if the psalm says shout joyfully, if the psalm says you have reason to have joy, then you ought to see it, you ought to hear it, you ought to experience it. It ought to be coming out of your mouth when you sing. It ought to be living in your heart. And so verse by verse by verse, he says there's reasons that you should shout joyfully. This is what you're told to do. You should sing about it. When you sing, it shouldn't be mundane. It shouldn't be this nonchalant attitude. It shouldn't just be, oh yeah, this is what we do because this is what Josh gets up and tells us to do. He says, no, if Scripture tells you this is a joyful event, it ought to be lived out that way. And so he goes on in verse 2 and he says, the reason that we should be joyful, the reason we should shout and sing for joy, in verse 2 he says, sing about the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. You see, the reason Christmas is such a glorious time and the reason that people were really looking forward to the birth of Christ is because the name that He was given. In fact, it was a name that He was given 700 years before He actually came into this earth. You see, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, probably one of the most famous Christmas prophecies of all time. In fact, it's the one that I've challenged you guys to memorize this month, and we're going to work through it just a little bit because it tells us such a beautiful picture of who this child is. In Isaiah chapter 9, Verse 6 says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named. And then he goes on to list four different names or four different identities the child is going to have. And each one of them is a reason for us to be joyful and a reason for us to sing. And we're going to walk through each one of these just kind of briefly. And, and I can share with you, you could really build a whole sermon on each one of these. But we're just going to hit each one of them for just a moment. The very first mention, he says, he will be named Wonderful Counselor. We sang about that just a moment. We go to Counselor. 
It's somebody that gives advice. It's somebody that, that has wisdom that has an option to share with you. Now, folks often think, oh, they don't need counseling. They don't need a counselor. But the reality is that everybody has counselors in our lives. Everybody seeks advice from somebody at different points in our lives. And so whatever situation you are in, you're hoping that a counselor can give you advice and kind of help you through that situation. For some of us, we have advice and we have counselors. We just call them friends, right? Let's be honest, that's what your friends are for, right? You should be able to go to your friends. You should be able to get advice from your friends. Your friends should be there to help you through a difficult situation. For some of us, this, we have friends, but we also have these co-workers, and, and they're there to help you and, and give you advice and tell you what you're doing. Let's be honest, some of us, we have counselors. We just call them YouTube videos. They just give you advice on things, situations that you're in, and how, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to do it, so what do you do? You just YouTube it. It's there, I can almost promise you. Whatever situation you're in, if you're trying to change the, the water pump on a 1976 Buick, it's probably there, all right? You can find this advice. And so don't think of counselor as like this man sitting on a chair and you laid out on a couch. That's not what it's like. It's simply this advice and this guidance that's available for you. And so he's telling you that he is the wonderful counselor. We all have counselors. We all have advice, but not all of them are wonderful. Charles Spurgeon the great uh, prince of preachers points out, he says, We have friends that talk very sweetly to us. And we will say at times, they are kind, good souls, but I'm not sure I can trust their judgment. Let's be honest, we all have friends in our lives that tell us exactly what we want to hear, right? We all have friends in our lives that are sweet and they're kind-hearted and they mean well and so they tell us such nice things. And so these are friends that, that if you come up with an idea, they are all on board with you all the way. Yeah, that sounds great. That's exactly what you need to do. And then you do it and you're like, that turned out terribly. And the friend is like, yeah, but I was right here with you, buddy. Now, all of us have those friends. If not, then I don't know who your friends, but those are the friends I had growing up, all right? They were with me all the time. They were my yes men. If, if I needed something, they were right there with it, and we did stupid stuff all the time, but we did it together. And then we look back, and we're like, that probably was not the best idea. You see, there's friends that mean well, and they're sweet, and they tell you nice things, they build you up, and they encourage you, but their judgment may not be the best for you. That's not a wonderful counselor. That's a counselor but it's not a wonderful counselor. And there's other people that give us advice that, that is, is solid advice. It is all based on good, solid judgment. Right? There's no emotion attached to it. There's no feeling attached to it. There, there's really no personality attached to it. It is just the facts. It is just this is what it is. This is the judgment. This is what needs to be done. If you're in this situation, what you need to do is A, B, C, D, and E. Right? In that order, don't skip any steps. Just do it and move on. Right? And that is the advice you need to get to whatever you are trying to do. Right? This is where our, our boss is. This is where our coworkers are. And so we start doing those things, but we begin to get to kind of question, you know, this is good advice because it's getting me where I need to be, but really is it giving me this advice because it's what's best for me? Or is it giving me this advice because it's what's best for him? Or is it giving me this because it's what's best for the company or best for the, 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 the world or best for the party that we're a part of or, or best for somebody? But is this really what's best for me? And so we begin to question whether that advice is the best advice because it may not be the best for me. It may just be the best for somebody else. And so Charles Spurgeon goes on to write that the reason that Jesus is the wonderful counselor is because we come to Christ and we get wisdom we get love, we get sympathy, we get everything that could possibly want in a counselor. 
You see, He is the wonderful counselor because we know we can trust both His judgment and His heart. We know that He has advice and guidance that gives us. And it's not just good advice. It is the best advice, not for Him, but for us. It is good for us and it is for His glory. And so we shout joyfully. We rejoice in His name because He is this wonderful counselor that has advice that is practical and it is best for us. And He goes on to say that He's more than just this trusted friend and advisor. You see, He goes on with His second name. The reason that we bring Him glory, His joy, is His name, that He is the mighty God. He is this all-powerful God, this God who has power to create simply by speaking things into existence. You go back to Genesis, and He creates this whole galaxy, this whole universe, this whole earth, and all that's on it, simply by speaking it into existence. This is the mighty God. This is the God who is so powerful and everything and, and, and so great and mighty in all things that He speaks them into existence. It is the God who knows and sees everything. It is the God who has the power to judge, but also the power to destroy. But amazingly, He also has the power to redeem. So understand that He is not only the God who has advice and guidance, but He is the God that you can trust because He's the God who can do something about it. You see, the beauty of this situation, the beauty of this, is that we can come to this God in prayer, not because He's going to give us advice, but simply because He's the one who can do something about it. This week I visited folks in the hospital and I've got several messages from different folks that are in the hospital. They're recovering from COVID. I've got a great friend right now who's struggling uh, in the hospital with COVID. And I can tell you that, that I can give all the advice I want to, but I can't do a thing about it. I would do anything if I could help get my friend out of the emergency department in the hospital. I would do anything I could to get him out of there, but I can't. But you know what I can do? I can take him to the wonderful counselor. I can take him to the mighty God who can do something about it. I can take him to the God who is almighty, all-powerful, controls all things and has all things and works all things for his good and for, our, for his glory and for our good. He is powerful and we can trust him in every situation regardless of how bad and how bleak it looks. You see, we rejoice in God because He is the one that defeats every enemy. We rejoice in God because He's the one who can break every chain that holds us and bonds us. We rejoice in God because He's the one who conquered death. This is the reason verse 3 says that His enemies cringe before Him because He is the mighty God. Third name that Isaiah gives this child is that He is the eternal Father. See, the Hebrew mindset is the Father is not necessarily biologically the Father He's the author or the source of something. Right? So think about this for a moment. If you were a Jew, and in fact, even to this day, I grew up singing this song that we have this father Abraham. Right? And he had many sons. And many sons had father Abraham. That's as close as I'm getting to singing for you right there this morning. Okay? <laughs> you, we were close, but that, that's as far as I'm going. All right? And so um, we're not really saying that he's the biological father of all the Jews. We are saying that he's the start and he's the source of this great nation, that he's the beginning of it. Right? We see a little bit of that even in our own history when we say some things like the Wright brothers or the father of modern aviation or that we have the father of modern medicine or the father of quantum physics. And we're not saying they are the biological father. We're simply saying they are the source and they're the start. They're the author of it. And so Jews describe this coming child. He is the eternal father. Father, the everlasting Father, which means He's the author and the source of all eternity, past, 
and future. And so the writer of Hebrews understands this clearly because in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, which you looked at just a couple weeks ago, he says this about this name of God, of, of Jesus. He says, after he, Jesus, was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You want a reason to be joyful for Christmas? It's simply in this name that He is the eternal Father that provides eternal salvation for each and every one of us who choose to obey Him and follow Him. We ought to rejoice that there's a God who wants to spend eternity with us. Have you ever thought about that? God wants to spend eternity with you. Listen, there are days I don't even want to spend with myself. Much less all of eternity. I love my three kids and I have a great time with them. But there are days and there are times when I've had enough of them and I want to send them to their mom and be like, they're yours now. Oddly enough, she's like, I've had them all day. Now they're yours. You've only had them for 10 minutes, okay? But I love my kids, but I want you to think about this. There is a God out there who created everything, made everything, has powerful beyond all imagination, and yet He wants to spend eternity with us. He wrote an eternal plan from beginning to end. He wrote eternity. And when He wrote eternity, He authored it. And He did it with this plan of salvation for you and for me. There's a God who wants to spend all of eternity with us. Many of us come and we make wedding vows because we want to spend the rest of our life with somebody. God wrote a wedding vow not because He wants to spend a few years or a few decades with you, because He wants to spend eternity with you. He is the author of eternal salvation. He is the eternal Father who provides eternal salvation for each of you. And this Jesus, this long-awaited child who's 700 years, is the source of that salvation because He is the eternal Father. And so Isaiah tells us he is the coming source of salvation. He tells us that he's the coming child and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Last week we, we dealt with this idea of peace and we talked about how peace is not just this absence of conflict. It is really this, this sense of wholeness, this sense of completion, this, this sense of harmony on the outside and on the inside that everything is exactly like it's supposed to be. All the gears are working together. All the puzzle pieces are exactly where they're supposed to be. And we spent this great deal of time talking last week about how we are not fitting that puzzle together. And the only way that all those pieces fit together is if the author of the puzzle puts it back like it should be we chose to break it but he chose to put it back together we chose to separate ourselves and isolate ourselves from God but the prince of peace comes and he says I'm going to put you back I'm going to make you have and allow you to have this harmonious whole relationship where you can feel at peace not just with yourself but with the God who created you see we rejoice and we shout joyfully the glorious name of the Savior because he is wonderful he is our counselor. He is mighty God. He is the everlasting Father, and He is our Prince of Peace. We shout joyfully to the God who He is because of what He is. We glorify His name. We, excuse me, I lost my place for a moment. John Calvin wrote, and he sums up these names all together, and he gives us a great reason to rejoice in Christ. He writes this, he says, When we need counsel, let us remember that He is the counselor. When we need strength, let us be reminded that He is mighty and strong. When there are terrors spring up suddenly with every instance, and even death threatens us with various quarters, let us rely on that eternity for which He is a good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all the temporal distresses 
when we are all inwardly tossed by various tempests, and when Satan attempts to disrupt our conscience, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace. That the names confirm us more and more in the faith of Christ. They fortify us against Satan and against hell itself. You want a reason to be joyful on Christmas? You want a reason to sing and shout joyfully to God? Simply the names that God gave to His Son 700 years before He was even born on this earth. You see, but we're honest, those are sufficient reasons enough to be joyful in Him. But the writer of Psalms says there's even more than just His name. There's even greater reasons to be joyful. And it's by His awe-inspiring works. He says, shout joyfully because God has done these amazing, wonderful things for you. In verse 3, he says that, Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. This word awe-inspiring is sometimes translated amazing, sometimes translated as awesome. Sometimes it's only translated as fear or terror. All right? It's kind of this idea that uh, you are just so shocked and just so kind of in awe that you really don't know what to do. It's those moments when you really have chills that run down your spine or the hairs on your arms stand up. It's the times that something happens and you're literally just frozen in place because you just you don't know how to comprehend all of it all at one time. Maybe you've had those experiences in your life. There's just that you see something or you witness something and you just step back and there's really no explanation except that God did something amazing there. And you're just standing there because you don't know what else to do. You're just struck there because you don't know what to say. You don't know what to feel. You're just kind of in awe that God did something that defied all logic at that point. That, that God did something truly amazing. And you're just kind of looking. You're just standing there like, I don't, I don't even know how this happened. I think of a time when I was a teenager and my brother and I uh, were standing on top of a, about a 30-foot cliff. And at the bottom of that 30-foot cliff was the truck that we just climbed out of and flipped upside down and rolled over several times. And me and my brother are standing on top of this cliff looking down at this truck, and neither one of us had a scratch on us. Those are all inspiring times. How in the world were we here, and then we were there, and now we're standing here, and nothing? Not a thing. Those times that defy our logic and define everything that we think should have happened and could have happened and would have happened. And honestly, the Christmas story is absolutely full of these awesome works of God, full of these moments that just leave people feeling amazed. And, and this is my struggle with Christmas, to be honest with you, is because for some of us, we've heard this Christmas story so much and so often, we aren't amazed by it anymore. We, we've heard this story so much and so often. We read about it, we hear about it, it's on TV, it even shows up in the Charlie Brown Christmas story, and we just hear it over and over and over. And we lost this sense of awe about it. We lost this sense of amazement about it. That we don't stand in just total shock that this is what's happening right now. But the word, the Christmas story is so full of it. Take, for example, the three different or the many different angelic appearances that happen in the story. You see, I want you to understand that we read those like they were commonplace. We read them like this was happening all the time, that angels just showed up and popped up all the time. And we forget the fact that before Luke chapter 1, it had been 500 years before anybody had heard or seen from an angel. 500 years of not seeing angels, of not hearing from angels. And all of a sudden in Luke chapter 1, one of them just shows up to somebody. He shows up to this guy named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 verse 11 and 12, and he says in verse 11, he says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. 
In verse 12, when Zacharias saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. A little later, the same angel appears to Mary and she has a similar reaction. She's perplexed and she's told, don't be afraid. In verse 2, the popular story that we hear so often, the actual Christmas story, the first people to hear about the birth of Christ is this group of shepherds. They're out doing their job. They're out just not, it's this normal day. Everything is normal. They're not expecting anything great. They're just expecting that maybe we'll kill a wolf today. Maybe a bear's going to, we just need to watch these sheep and keep them protected. And all of a sudden, in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, says, Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. You see the same reaction every time the angels appear. Fear and terror. And I want to tell you this. I connected these three because it's an amazing idea when you look at it because the Greek word in all three of those stories, it deals with fear and terror. But it's the exact same root word in all three of those stories that we find in the Greek translation of, of, of Psalm 66. That it is shocking. That it is amazing. That these moments of fear and terror are part of this awe-inspiring works of God. These shocking moments. These breathtaking moments that literally leave these grown men who fight off bears and wolves. Leave them shocked and just overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. They're literally sitting there shaking and just left not knowing how to comprehend all that's going on. Because of what they saw. In this amazing moment. This awe-inspiring moment. And the only thing they have. This must be something that God is doing. That God is doing something amazing. So we sing to God because He's the one who commands the angels. These awe-inspiring works of God that leave us shouting for joy. Because for just a moment in the Christmas story, we get a beautiful glimpse of what all eternity is going to be like. We get a joy in heaven, the thousands and thousands of angels glorifying God. And this is the glory that awaits us. This is the glory that we will see for all of eternity. This is the eternity that Christ has authored and the source of it all. And we get just a glimpse of it. So much joy at this moment that heaven itself could not contain it all. It overflows and it spills out into our world. And so the angels rejoicing in this awe-inspiring work of God. And Psalm 66 says, listen, you ought to join them in this. You ought to join them in their amazement. You ought to join them in their worship. You ought to join them in their praise. You ought to join them in shouting and singing for joy because of the amazing things that God is doing. There's a second awe-inspiring work of Christmas, and it's the two miraculous conceptions that happen. We're very familiar with the one of Mary, but the first one is Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. You see, like everybody in those days, Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. It was considered a blessing from God if you had children. You were considered cursed if you didn't have children. So they lived their life each year and each day wanting to have a child, wanting the joy of holding that newborn child, wanting the joy of watching that child grow up, wanting to know that God had favored them and blessed them with this child, wanting this joy and the laughter that comes to adding to their family. And it never happened for them. Over and over and over, they're praying for it. They're wanting it more than anything. And so by the time we're introduced to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, I want you to see how he describes himself in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I am already an old man, and my, well, my wife is well along in years. At least he was smart enough to say, I'm old, and she's just well along in years. He didn't call her an old woman, all right? Now, I'm old, and my wife is well along in years. What it really means is, listen... Gabriel, we're, we're beyond this. We wanted that for so long. We, we begged for it. We prayed for it. We wanted it for so long. But listen, we're, we're in our 60s. 
70s, maybe even 80s. We don't know for sure at this time, but our, our time's passed. That clock has ticked away, and, and it's, it's useless now. There, there's no way that this can happen. We're, we're too old for this. We are beyond bearing children at this time in our life. And just an all hope seem lost. God does an awe-inspiring work. He makes a way when everybody else says it's impossible. He makes a way when there is no other way. He allows Zachariah and Elizabeth, this barren older woman and this barren older man who could not have child, children, could not make, conceive a child on their own. And all of a sudden, he does something that everybody else says is impossible. And it leaves Zachariah just awestruck in amazement in this awe-inspiring work of God and says, only God can do what they did. You see, the second conception is that of Mary. And you don't have to know much about the Christmas story to know the conception of Christ is this awe-inspiring work of God that it defies logic, it defies explanation, this supernatural conception that shows that God can do what humanity says is impossible. And again, the angel's message through it all, rejoice. Be filled with joy. Be glad that God is doing something great, that God is doing something amazing, that God is doing things that only He can do. You want a reason to be joyful and it's shown in Christmas that God can do things that nobody else can. That God can say, yes, it is the answer. When everybody else says, no, it can't be the answer. That God can do amazing things through these signs and these conceptions. When everybody else says, no, all hope is lost, God says, no, let me show you my abilities. You see, when we look at the God who does the amazing things, we go back to Psalm 66 and all we can do is shout joyfully to the God who does these amazing things. To say that God is awe-inspiring in His works. We should be filled with joy because God can do what everybody else says can't be done. That He is not limited to what we think, what we can imagine, what our situation says, what the doctor says. He's not limited to what we can feel or what we can think about or what we can even comprehend. The miraculous conceptions of the Christmas story autumn make us shout for joy because it demonstrates that God is not limited to anything that we think can limit Him. You see, the most, probably the most awe-inspiring part of the Christmas story is the incarnation of Christ Himself. I want you to think about this for a moment. This child that is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, this child that's literally wrapped in rags, laying in a feeding trough because there was no room for Him in the end. He is not just an ordinary child. This is the child that prophets have been foretelling for hundreds of years. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the very God of the universe lying in a feeding trough. You see, we see so often the nativity scene. We see the manger. We, we see the little plastic Jesus or, or whatever, the wooden Jesus there. And we forget that that is the God of the universe. And we forget to ask the questions like, how in the world... Does the God of the universe fit into such a tiny little body when the greatest heavens could not contain Him? How does the God of the universe wrap Himself in flesh and dwell among us? How does the God of the universe humble Himself, become so vulnerable and so dependent that He can't even take care of Himself? He's just like every other child in that aspect. That He had to be fed just like every other child. That He had to be carried around because the God of the universe gave up His, his opportunity to walk on His own legs. The, the God of the universe had to be changed just like every other child. He is so vulnerable and so dependent on everyone else. How does the God of the universe fit into this world? How is this tiny little body? How is it both 100% human and yet 100% God at the same time? How is every nature and characteristic of God and every nature and characteristic of every child how is it all in this tiny little vulnerable baby 
And I don't know about you, but those are the questions that baffled me. Those are the questions that, that really I cannot wrap my mind around. Those are the questions that defy all my scientific reasoning and all my scientific logic. And those are the questions that, that, that kind of, when I look at the manger scene, I just wonder and I'm struck in awe. And the only answer I have is this is an awe-inspiring work of God. I don't have an answer for it. It is a mystery beyond my comprehension. It is a mystery beyond anything that I can think of or I can find. This is a mystery and a miracle that only God can do. And if, if, if we're not careful, we overlook this awe-inspiring moment that God took on flesh and He dwelt among us. We forget that this little baby in the manger is the one who created it all. We forget this baby in the manger is the wonderful counselor. We forget this baby in the manger is the everlasting Father who wrote all of eternity, past and future. We forget that He is mighty God all in this tiny, little, vulnerable, fragile body. It is amazing to me that we so often overlook that. We shout joyfully because God does this awe-inspiring work. We shout joyfully because we serve a God who does the impossible. He shows us who He is and why He does these amazing things. A pastor in Arkansas once wrote, The incarnation displays the greatness of God. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant, withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us in every way, and His ways are not our ways. He is not a God that we can put in a box, that we can control. He is not a God that we carry where we want to and leave where we want to. Our God is a God who redeems us by His blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin, which brings us to our final reason that the Christmas story should make us shout for joy and be joyful to God is simply because of His great compassion for us. We see it clearly in verse 5. The final reason we have to shout for joy this Christmas in verse 5. Come and see the wonders of God. And get this, His acts for humanity are all Inspiring. You see, the reason that God does all inspiring, the reason that God does amazing, wonderful things, it's not for Him. It's for humanity. It is for you and for me. He is acting for humanity. He is doing things for our good, not for His good. He is doing things for us. He is acting and He's working for our benefit. God doesn't become a baby in a manger because He's going to benefit from it. God doesn't become a baby in a manger so that He can brag about it to all the other heavenly angels. And say, Look what I can do. Let me show you off. He doesn't gain a thing from it. You know why He does it? For me and for you. The great works that He does for humanity. If God is going to redeem humanity, He has to become human. And so the reason that He does this amazing thing, the reason He becomes this child in the manger is so that He can redeem humanity for me and for you. And that's the lesson of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We looked at it several months ago where the writer says, Therefore, He had to be like His brothers in every way so that He could become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God to make substitution or propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. You see, the only way that He becomes our sacrifice to pay for our sins is if He became just like us. And He did it all because of His compassion for us. God doesn't gain a thing through Christmas. God doesn't gain a thing through the Easter story. 
If God wanted to write eternity with you and me, He could have done it without Christmas. If God wanted to write eternity with you and me, He could have done it without, without Easter. If God wanted to write eternity without you and me, He very well could have done it. But He didn't. He wrote this story from beginning to end. From hundreds of years before Christ, to the birth of Christ, to the death of Christ. All with one mind, reason in mind. You. And me. It is His works of compassion that should cause us to shout joyfully. It is this works of compassion that the reason we have Christmas, His compassion at Christmas should be reason enough for us to shout joyfully to the Lord. His compassion at Christmas should give us reason enough to worship and to praise Him. His compassion at Christmas should be reason enough for there to be joy in the world and for us to be the agents of that joy, to walk out those doors and spread that joy with everybody else, to say to them what exactly He says in verse 5 here. Come and see the wonders of God and what He did for you. You see, the joy of Christmas shouldn't be contained within us. The joy of Christmas to spread to the world should be the fact that we are shouting out, verse 5, come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are all inspiring. The joy of Christmas should inspire us to call others to come and see what He did for them. The compassion of Christmas is what brings joy to the world. Let's pray together.